Good morning again. If we could open our Bibles to John's Gospel, chapter 12. We've been making our way through the Gospel of John, and this morning we're going to be looking at one of the most significant things, prophecies really, the fulfillment of prophecy in the entire Bible. And so pretty significant, and this is a topic that we have looked at before, so this may be new to some of you, and for some of you it will be new. Um, But let's take a look at it. You recall that when we got together last week, we looked at this, the first uh, really 11 verses of John chapter 12, and Jesus is looking uh, very closely toward the end of his life here on the earth. And in fact, as we look at chapters 12 through the end of the book, it really encompasses just a few days. And especially chapters 13 through 18 really specifically talk about just about a 24, maybe 36-hour period of Jesus' life. And we know that as the the Last Supper and the events surrounding his uh, arrest and certainly his crucifixion, and three days later, his resurrection. But right now, we're getting into just like a week prior to all of that happening. And you recall last week, we looked at Jesus coming to Bethany, and this is after he had raised Lazarus, his friend, from the grave, raised him from the dead, creating quite a stir among the Jews and the religious leaders. Because no one has been able to do that ever. And here Jesus, the one who had been prophesied of for hundreds of years, even a few thousand years, it had been prophesied that he would come and that he would accomplish all of these things. And so he raises Lazarus from the dead. And then it tells us that that they made a supper for him. And we saw the extravagant worship of Mary. Not Mary, his mother, but Mary and Martha, who were the sisters of Lazarus. But this Mary of Bethany, she takes this jar of spikenard, which was very very costly, worth a year's wages, literally. That's what the Bible tells us. So it was an extravagant worship. And is Jesus worthy to be worshipped? I mean, is there anything too big or too small that you can worship him with? There isn't. But Mary's heart was so filled with joy because Jesus had raised her brother from the grave. And so she was very thankful, as we all ought to be when we think about all the things that God has done for us. In fact, as we've just come off of Thanksgiving, we give thanks for all that God has done in our lives, for salvation, for bringing us into a country where we can live and we have liberty and freedom. And do you realize what we have here in America is so unlike any other place in the world? We are a very blessed nation, an extremely blessed nation, and it's worth fighting for. And it's worth standing up and, 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 and making our voices known. And so we have a lot to be thankful for, but Mary was especially thankful because Jesus had raised her brother. And the Bible makes no mention of, of, of their parents, these three siblings, Lazarus and Mary and Martha. It makes no mention of their parents. It's very likely that Lazarus was the breadwinner. Being the eldest son, being the only son, he would be responsible for taking care of his sisters. And so to have him dead would have created an undue strain on them in a significant way. But Jesus raised him, his friend, 
He raised him from the grave. And we looked at that. We saw just the extravagant worship of Mary. And I love that. There's really, uh, this to us, to me personally, is a good example for us to follow. That when we worship Christ, we don't just, you know, don't be afraid to go all out in whatever it is. In whatever it is. He's worthy of it, no matter what. I mean, if you could give him all the gold in the world, do you think that would, that would be a big deal to him? No, he made it. <laughs> right? It says the heavens declared the glory of, or I'm sorry, excuse me, that he made everything. In Genesis 1 verse 1, God created. He spoke it all into existence. So it's no big deal to him. So we looked at that, and right on the heels of that, we, we find that the religious leaders, they not only wanted to put Jesus to death because of this miracle that he did, but they also wanted to put Lazarus back to death. He died, he was risen, he was raised from the grave. They want to kill him again because of the significance of that event. So now they got two people they've got, they want to kill. They want to kill Jesus because they're jealous of him. And they want to kill Lazarus because he is a reminder of their impotence, of their lack of power. And Jesus comes and heals him. And so literally on the next day of that, after that, it says the next day in verse 12, look with me in John chapter 12, verse 12. The next day a great multitude that had come to the feast when they had heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took branches of palm trees And went out to meet him and cried out, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. And then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, he sat on it. And as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. Now, John's gospel here uh, speaks very little about this event, but we know this is one of the events in the Bible where all four gospels cover this this significant event, and they all cover it because it is significant. We're going to look at that this morning, but I'd like for you to turn over with me to Matthew's gospel in the 21st chapter, because we're going to read, excuse me, We're going to read a little bit more about it, and then we're going to zap over to Luke's gospel for just a couple of verses. And I'm bringing this, I'm I'm, I'm stringing this along to you so that you get the bigger picture, because remember, the gospels were written, and each gospel, especially Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they are called the synoptic gospels. So they cover similar material, similar events in Jesus' life. Excuse me, this dry air is really... uh, Anybody having a problem with that? (laughs) But the synoptic gospels, they call them that because they cover similar events. But John's gospel, written uh, much later than the other three gospels, is very different. We know the reason for that because he wanted to show that, that Jesus is God, that believing in him we might have life through his name. That was the whole thrust behind John's gospel is to show the deity of Jesus Christ. Not that the other Gospels didn't, but that this Gospel is very specific. It has one goal, and that's just to show that this is the Word of God become flesh, dwelt among us, paid the price for our sins, God Almighty in the flesh, Jesus Christ. And yet, it includes this triumphal entry, this significant event. 
Look with me at John, um, excuse me, Matthew chapter 21. It says that when, when they, speaking of Jesus and his disciples, when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, when Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village opposite you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them, and they brought the donkey and the colt, and they laid their clothes on them and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. This is a very messianic title that they were giving to Jesus. Hosanna, save now, O Son of David. They knew the prophecies. There were a handful of people who were faithful. They knew who Jesus was, and they were ready for him. But unfortunately, the vast majority of Israel had no idea. They had no clue. Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now turn with me to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. And we're going to look at verse 39 through 44. And immediately after that, notice what the Bible tells us. It says, And some of the Pharisees, as Jesus was making this entry into Jerusalem on the donkey, some of the Pharisees called to him, to Jesus, from the crowd, saying, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Because they were giving him a very messianic title, and they were recognizing that their hearts were filled with faith, and they knew what the prophecies had told about him coming in. Again, a handful, a remnant knew this, but the vast majority, including the religious leaders, they had no idea. And so they were upset with Jesus. Jesus, rebuke your disciples. And notice what Jesus tells them. But he answered and said unto them, I tell you that even if these should keep silent the stones would immediately cry out. And I wonder what song they might have sung. I kind of wish they were silent. Have you ever had a rock rock, uh, chorus? And I believe they would (laughs) have. Maybe they would sing the hymn, Rock of Ages. Rock of Ages. But notice, now as he went near, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, and he's speaking to Jerusalem and the people in it, if you only knew, especially in this, your day, this day that he was writing in, if you knew this day the things that belong for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another. And why is this going to happen? Because you did not know the time of your visitation. Yes, you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus held them accountable for this event. This triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, like I said before, is one of the most significant fulfillments in Bible prophecy. 
And it's an event in the life of Jesus that ties in with Daniel chapter 9, verses 25, 24 through 27, which has been said, and I believe this with all my heart, is the key to all end-time prophecy in the Bible. And so this is a significant event that has happened as Jesus rode in on. Notice in verse 12, back in our text in, in John chapter 12, and we're going to look at this. The next day, it says that after, again, this is the next day after the supper with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. The next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, which means save now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Quoting from Psalm 118, the people were as they began to, to cry out. And um, verse 14, it says, Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, he sat on it as it is written. And uh, Matthew, as we just read, notice that it tells us that it was a male colt, a young male colt that he rode upon. And his mother, the, the female donkey, the donkey's mother, came along with him. But, but Jesus sat on the young colt whom, upon whom no one has ever sat on before. Has anybody tried to sit on a wild animal that has never been saddled, never been broken, never been trained? Yet Jesus did. And to me, it's just one of those interesting things that God, the creator of all things, has control over his creation. As Jesus caused the waters to still when they were out in the boat, remember in the Galilee, and the storm came up, Jesus was able to calm the storm. He had control over nature. He has control over everything that he's created. Even this young donkey, this male young donkey, he had con complete control over. The thing didn't try to buck him wildly off like a, like a rodeo, and it would have for any other person. But Jesus rides in on this donkey. And notice in verse 15 in our text, it says, Fear not, daughter of Zion. And here is a quote from Zechariah. Several hundreds of years prior to this event, Zechariah the prophet says, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. In fact, in Zechariah, it says this. Let me just quote it to you. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation. I think the prophet had it. He understood what was, what was coming yet in the future. He's not just coming into Jerusalem. No, he has salvation. He was going to be the one who would die in the place of every man and woman in the entire human race. He would be the one. He is coming to you, Jerusalem. And he is just, and he's having salvation. And here's a sign for you. He's going to be lowly and riding on a donkey, actually a colt, the foal of a donkey, written hundreds of years prior to its coming to fulfillment. I think it's pretty significant. And the Jews knew this verse. They knew this verse. But just like you and I, life can take over, and here they are. The majority of them, as Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, many of them don't have a clue of who he is. There's a remnant. There was a remnant. They were a very small group of people who knew what Jesus was doing. A very small. 
But he comes on a donkey, not a horse. Throughout history, we know that kings or generals, when they had conquered a city or a land, they would often come riding in to the, into their hometown, riding on a, on, a, on, a, on, a, on a white horse or a horse, a stallion of some kind, in victory, often having the loot from the land or even prisoners that they had taken captive would be in the entourage as these generals or kings would make their way back into their hometown, claiming victory. That's what Titus Vespasian did. When you look on the... In, uh, in, in Rome, and you see the, um, the, ar- um, uh, the ark there, the arch, it has a picture on the side of them, of Titus Vespasian coming into Rome with the slaves that they had taken captive, the Jews. And it shows them with the menorah coming into Rome with the menorah. Very similar thing. And a king would do that when he's coming to conquer. But Jesus came to save. He didn't come to conquer yet. He didn't come to conquer yet. But there is a time when he is coming that he will conquer. And let me just read it to you because this is one of my favorite portions of Scripture. And I'll just read it to you. You can see it. um, uh, Well, you see the reference. You can write it down. But notice what's going to happen when Jesus finally does come back in his second coming. He's not going to come as the meek and mild Jesus laying in a manger, paying the price for sin. No, he's already done that. But when he does come back, he's going to come back with vengeance. He's going to come back with vengeance. And he's going to exact judgment on this world. It is still yet future to us. After the church has been raptured, there's going to be a time, we've looked at this in Revelation, of seven years of great tribulation where the man of sin will rise. Some uh, notable European ruler will rise and he will revive the old Roman Empire and he will be the one that will unite the world in a one-world government, a one-world economy, and a one-world religion. And all those things right now concurrently are beginning to form very nicely. We looked at that a few weeks ago. It's all happening. And yet, at the end of that, Jesus will come back. And what does it tell us in Revelation 19, verse 11? Let me read it to you. Now I saw heaven open, John says, as as God has given in this vision. And behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except for himself. And he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. Who is this king of glory as we sang it is jesus christ coming back and no he's not coming back with and and to save souls he's coming back to exact vengeance upon a world that has rejected his only offer of salvation are you ready for that and i say that because if you're a christian you'll never see this you'll be coming back with him the bible tells us that in fact let's go on and look what it says So he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Guess what? That's you and I. We're coming back. After we're raptured, we will be changed in the twinkling of an eye, given new bodies, but we will come back with him, and he will exact the vengeance, and we will just be coming back with him to the earth for a thousand years. The Bible calls it, The thousand-year reign of Christ, we know it as the millennium. But notice, the armies of heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. And now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will will rule them, excuse me, with a rod of iron. 
and he himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written. And here's his name, that wonderful name, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That's who's coming back on a white horse. He came first on a donkey, but when he comes back again, folks, he's coming back with the king of all creation, and it's not going to be pretty for those on the earth. For those on the earth. Do you think God loves people? He does. God says that he does not delight in the death of the wicked. He does not. It's not his will that any should perish, but all should come to repentance, to turn around from their wicked ways and to follow him and to be born again. So Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. He should have been heralded by the Jews, by everyone, but he was not except for a few. And notice the indictment that he tells them at the, at the, at the bottom there of Luke chapter 19. He's going to allow the city to be leveled it was around 30, 32 A.D., somewhere in that area. And Jesus told them at that time, around 30, between 30, around 32 A.D., because you did not know the time of your visitation, you didn't understand what this event was all about, you should have known Jerusalem. You should have known Jews who have studied the Word of God, who have known about it. You should have known this. And in Jesus, when he's speaking in these verses, in verse 43 and 44 in Luke's Gospel, when it talks about that there'll be no, no stone left, um, uh, no, that, that they would leave, not leave, one stone wouldn't be left upon another. In, in other words, there would be, the, the Jerusalem itself would be raised to the ground, and that's exactly what happened. It happened. And there's proof of that, because here I am on the, um, the southwest side of the Temple Mount, and this was March of 2020 during COVID. We were over in Israel, and these are the very same stones that the Romans dragged off the Temple Mount. We weren't really supposed to be here, but there was nobody around, and so I, I got a picture of me standing on those rocks. But those are the, those are the rocks. That is a fulfillment of this prophecy. Jerusalem in 70 AD was raised, and they dragged those huge ashlars from Herod's temple. They dragged them off the side, and they lay there to this day. They lay there to this day. So why is this triumphal entry so significant? Because it is the fulfillment of prophecy. Um, you might want to write down in the margin of your Bible here in John, write down uh, Daniel chapter 9, verse 24 through 27. Now, we're just going to go through this, and um, some of you have, have heard some of this before. But notice with me, this is one of the most significant verses, prophecies in the Bible. Notice in Daniel chapter 9, verse 24, the angel Gabriel comes to Daniel while he's in exile, while he's taken captive. He is now a young, uh, actually at this time he's an old man, but now he's in, he's in Babylon, and the Lord gives to him this prophecy, which we have fulfilled now. 
And this prophecy was about 550 years prior to the event that we're looking at right now of Jesus riding in on the donkey. Notice what it says. It says, 70 weeks are determined for your people, Daniel, your people, the Jews, and for your holy city, speaking of Jerusalem, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy... Many of these things have not yet even still been fulfilled, but notice what it says in verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth, notice this, the going forth of the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. And we believe, we we know these are weeks of years, not literal weeks, but weeks of years. We'll look at that in a minute. But there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks, a total of 69 weeks. And the streets shall be built again, and the wall, speaking of Jerusalem, even in troublous times. And after the 62 weeks, in other words, after that 69th week, because they assume you already looked at the first seven, and after the 62 weeks, Messiah The Mashiach Nagid, the Messiah, the Prince, the King, he shall be cut off. Literally, he will be killed, but not for himself. He wasn't killed because he did anything wrong. Rather, he died for others. And the people of the Prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war. Desolations are determined. Now, there's another verse after this that we're not going to spend any time on because it goes outside of the scope of what we're looking at today. But who is the people of the prince that shall come that shall destroy the city? We believe this revived Roman emperor, this, this man of sin, the Bible calls the Antichrist, who is yet to come on the planet, or he may be alive today, we don't know. But he's going to rise to power, and the Bible calls him a a prince, the prince that shall come. And the people of the prince, who were they that destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD? The Romans. The Romans. The people of the prince that shall come. Do you see that? From the revived Roman emperor, this, this leader will stand. The Bible talks a lot about that. We don't have time to go into it. But he is going to be the one. But the people of the prince are going to destroy the city. When did that happen? 70 AD. We know that that happened. The people of princess shall come. They destroyed the city. But we know that these are 70... uh, And there's another verse which we didn't look at. We better just quickly go through that because this won't make sense if we don't. Now in, in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, I don't have it for you up here, but it says... And this is the very next verse in 27 in Daniel chapter 9. Then, after these things, then he, speaking of this prince that shall come, this Antichrist, he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. In other words, a week of years, a seven-year period. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. We know that the Antichrist will have a temple built after the church is removed in the uh, great tribulation period, their, their temple will be built again, but midway through that, there is, he's going to break a covenant with the people of Israel, and he's going to force them to worship him, and he will set an image of himself in that temple, and they will be forced to worship him, and then they will realize there's something wrong. But this, this 70th week, this last week of years, is yet 
future to us now. So there's been a huge gap of time from this time of the beginning, the command to go forth to rebuild in Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, until he would ride in. After that, there'd be a great gap of time, and you and I are in that gap of time right now. We call it the church age. The church age. We'll look at that. But notice that 77s, or weeks of years, this idea has precedent in the Bible. The Sabbath for the land, in Leviticus it tells us that, that there's a seven-year period. It's a Sabbath. Work six, six years and let the land grow fallow for the seventh year. Give the land a Sabbath. What about the year of Jubilee? 49 years. And then on the 50th year, 77s, 70 or seven weeks of years. And then we know, so now we have something to figure out here. And again, very significant. While the Jews were in Babylon, there were four decrees that were made. And we're not going to go into any of these in great detail except for the last one. There were four decrees. The first one was by Cyrus, king of Persia, in 536 B.C. The second one was by Darius, in 519 B.C., and then the third, Artaxerxes Longimanus, 458 B.C., and the same gentleman in 445 B.C. made a decree. But we know that the first decree that was made by Cyrus spoke of, and it's recorded for us in Chronicles 36 and Ezra chapter 1, but it only speaks of the rebuilding of the temple. It doesn't talk about the streets and the gates in troublous times. It doesn't refer to this because this is referring to the temple. Well, what about the second decree from Darius that's recorded for us in Ezra chapter 5 through 6? It speaks of, if you read it, it speaks of the rebuilding of the temple, and it's a reiteration of Cyrus's decree. And then finally, the third decree by Artaxerxes Longimanus, king of Persia. It's recorded for us in Ezra 7. That decree was speaking of provision for the priests and the sacrifices and the articles for the house of God, but nothing about the streets, nothing about the, the gates and the wall of Jerusalem. But there is one, the very fourth one, is recorded for us in Nehemiah chapter 2. In fact, if, turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 2. <clears throat> Excuse me. And this speaks specifically to the repair of the walls and to rebuild the city's walls and gates. To rebuild the city's walls and gates. And remember, Nehemiah was one of the captives from Jerusalem that got led into captivity. And while he was there, he actually served under King Artaxerxes, it tells us, and we're just going to look at the first uh, handful of verses in Nehemiah chapter 2. It says, And it came to pass in the month of Nizon, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when, when wine was before him. And notice Nehemiah says that I took wine and I gave it to the king. Now I had never been sad in his presence before, and therefore the king said to me, Why is your face sad since you are not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. So I became dreadfully afraid, and I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lie waste, notice, and the gates are burned with fire? And then the king said to me, Well, what do you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I love this. Even though his prayer is not recorded, it's a very quick prayer because he's got to answer the king who's waiting for him. And I would think that the prayer would probably go something like this. Help, Lord. <laughs> 
Help, Lord. What do I say? Help me to be succinct. Because I'm standing before Artaxerxes. And then he said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. And then the king said to me, the queen also sitting beside him, How long will your journey be, and when will you return? And so it pleased the king to send me, and I set a time. And furthermore, I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given to me, Uh, for the governors of the region beyond the Euphrates River, that they must permit me to pass through till I come to Judah, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he must give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel, which pertains to the temple, for the city wall. Notice this. And for the house that I will occupy. And the king granted it to me according to the good hand of my God upon me. And then I went to the governors in the region beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent captains of the army and horsemen with me. And when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite officially heard it, they were deeply disturbed that a man had come to seek the well-being of the children of Israel. And look at verse 11. So I came to Jerusalem and was there for three days. And then I arose in the night, and I, and I had a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem, nor was there any animal with me except the one on which I rode. And I went out by night. I rode through the valley gate to the serpent well and the refuse gate. And notice, I viewed the walls of Jerusalem. This is the decree or the command that Artaxerxes had given to Nehemiah. That command to go and to build. He says, the walls of Jerusalem which were broken down and its gates which were burned with fire. And then I went out to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal under me to pass. So I went up in, uh, in the night by the valley and I viewed what? The wall. And then I turned back and entered by the valley gate, and so returned. And nobody knew what I was doing. <laughs> now let's go back to our prophecy here in Daniel. The command to restore and to rebuild Jerusalem. We know that was this, this decree or this command that Artaxerxes had given to Nehemiah. Now one thing we have to understand about God's prophetic calendar is that he deals with 30-day months and years that are 360 days. That was the Jewish and the Babylonian calendar, and there's plenty of examples for that, which we won't get into now. But they dealt in 30-day, 30-month periods, 360 days in a year. So the Lord was giving to the Jews and us an equation to solve. Remember, it says that from the going forth of the commandment until Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and then 62 weeks, a total of 69 weeks of years. So we take those 69 weeks of years, times that by seven years, that gives us 483 years. And we multiply that by another 360 days. It gives us a total of 173,880 days. Now, time doesn't permit us to really talk about the division. Why was it seven weeks of years and then 62? We're not going to talk about that right now. There, there are some conjectures about what that may be. But nonetheless, it's a total of 69 years. So, from the going forth of the commandment to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, 
When was it the first time that Jesus allowed himself to be to go into Jerusalem and be heralded as the king? Was there any time in the Gospels that Jesus did that and that the people received it or a, 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 a small minority received it? Not until now. Not until now. It was a very specific, very specific day, and they called him the Messiah, the Prince, the Mashiach Nagid. Messiah, the King, would come. So from that commandment, from that time, when Artaxerxes made that command until Jesus rode in on that donkey, we've got some math to do, don't we? And we look at it. So on our calendar, when was on our calendar, when was the decree made? We know that it was March 14th, 445 BC. That was the beginning. And now we go forward 69 weeks of years, 173,880 days, taking into account the leap years and all of that. You fast forward from that command, 69 weeks, what do you come to? April 6, 32 AD. What's the significance of this day? It's the very day that Jesus rode in on this donkey, fulfilling the prophecies of Daniel that were written 500 years, at least 550 years prior. He fulfilled that very succinctly, and very few people knew it. And that's why he said, you didn't know this day of your visitation. You didn't know, you didn't understand what this was all about. And this was the one time that he went into Jerusalem as the king of Israel, the king of all creation. And a handful knew about it, but for the vast majority of Israel completely blinded to it completely blinded to it let's take a look at just the math this is one of the, this is really profound so i hope you got your slide rules out so if we look at 445 bc to 32 ad that's 476 years in our calendar in our gregorian calendar so 476 by 365 days, it gives us that number there, the 173,740 days. And then you do the math from March 14th through April 6th, another 24 days. You take into account the leap years, it gives us a total of 173,880 days. See, it doesn't matter whether you're going by God's prophetic calendar or whether our Gregorian calendar that we've been using for, quite a, for hundreds of years, it really doesn't matter how you slice it. The main thing is, is that from that moment when Artaxerxes made the command until Jesus rode in on the donkey was an exact amount of time. Remember, Jesus says, you didn't know this, your day. It was a very specific day. Do you follow me? It was a very specific day. And there was no mistake about it. And when Jesus rode in on that donkey in Jerusalem, oh, it created quite a stir because we know that after that, he cleansed the temple. He overthrew the tables of change they were, they, you know, and the things that they were using to sell animals and, 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 and ripping the people off. The religious leaders were making lots of money by providing animals for people to make it convenient for them to worship when they would come from far lands. They didn't have to bring their own lamb. They didn't have to bring their own animal. They could just go to the temple and the priests would be glad to give you that, but it was going to cost you through the nose. They were making tons of money, and Jesus knew about it. And so what did he do? He overturned the tables, and he says, you, my house is supposed to be called a house of prayer, and you have made it a den of thieves. You've made it a den of thieves. You're all getting rich. Shame on you. My people are here to worship. 
and all you're thinking about is how to make a quick buck. That's what that was about. And Jesus held them accountable, and he said, as a result of this, because you didn't know, this place is going to be raised to the ground. Not one stone left upon another. You saw me standing on those, those uh, ashlars from Herod's temple. They dragged it all off the temple mount. And there they lay today as a testimony of this. And Jesus said that many, many years ago. He said that. In fact, let me read it to you again now that we've looked at it. Jesus said to them, he saw the city as he was going and he wept over it. If you had known, even you, especially notice in this, your day. Jews, this, your day, this moment in history, as I rode in, Jesus said, to Jerusalem on that donkey, this day, this day, if you had even known it, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come when your enemies, the Romans, they will build an embankment around you. They certainly did lay a siege all around Jerusalem until at some point they decided enough's enough. We're just going to destroy it. And they certainly did. And they will they surround you and close you in on every side and they will level you and your children within you to the ground and they will not leave in you one stone upon another. On that Temple Mount, it was all scraped off and put in the southwest valley of the Temple Mount, as we saw earlier. There's a couple of really great books. <laughs> if you're the type who likes to read and you don't mind reading some heady material, there's two really great books I'd recommend to you. One is called The Coming Prince by Sir Robert Anderson. He was a, a man who, uh, an investigator, in Scotland Yard, a very intelligent man, a man who would look at details. This is how, what he did for a living. He solved crimes. And this man took it upon himself to disprove the Bible. And in the process of doing so, he gets wonderfully saved as he begins to pour over the Scriptures and put the pieces together. And he goes, oh my goodness, I didn't know because I didn't read. I didn't look into it. But now I know. And he devoted his life to studying the scriptures. He devoted his life, and God gave him one of the most significant revelations in the 20th century, and that is this math that we looked at, this significant prophecy that had been fulfilled. He gave that to him. He went back, and he, he looked at the different uh, decrees that were made, and he, he said, there's only one of these that lines up with what Daniel says. And then he looked at the the uh, astrological or the, the, the charts and, and, and the maps. and the, um, he, look, he, look, he was a very intelligent guy. He looked into all of the details at his disposal and he came to the conclusion from that moment until Christ rode in, there was a specific amount of time and God told us, told the Jews back in Daniel, 69 weeks of years, or 173,880 days, to the day Jesus wrote on. No mistake, it wasn't some haphazard thing, but he wrote this book. It's called The Coming Prince. It's a wonderful read, not real easy to read. It's not like a novel. It's very heady in some areas. And there's also another book by um, Harold Honer by, called The Chronological Aspects of the Life of Jesus Christ. He comes to, he has a, a few different dates 
Because when you go back in time, that length of time, there is some, there's room for discrepancy of time. But they all agree on this, that it was that decree until Christ came in on the donkey. They all agree on that, and they all agree that it was that amount of days. 173,880 days. An amazing thing, wouldn't you agree? And this was known just in the 20th century. Just in the 20th century. Let's go on to verse 16, because I'm hoping to get down to at least verse 19. So I think, I don't know about you, but as I look at what we just covered, I know we went through it fairly quickly. Maybe some time will take two hours (laughs) or a couple days and and, and really dive into this, because there's a lot here. But in a very abbreviated form, that's it. That's it. For any unbeliever, my jaw would hit the ground if I understood the significance of this. And he just put it all together. (laughs) Back in Daniel's time, in the 6th century B.C., God gives him this prophecy. Fast forward about 550 years. It comes literally to pass on the very day. And then, some 35 years after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, the prophecy continues to be fulfilled because the Romans come in 70 AD and finish part of this prophecy. And guess what? There's still more of it yet to come. And there's this great interval of time because the 70th week is yet ahead of us. But right now, God is using this church age for us to tell people about Jesus. You and I, if you're a believer in Jesus, we belong to the church. Whether you're Jew or Gentile, doesn't matter what you are, where you've come from, are you part of the church this morning? So verse 16, it says, His disciples did not understand these things at first, and when Jesus was glorified, meaning when he was resurrected, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. I would encourage you, be encouraged in your learning and in your growing in the Lord and reading his, his word because the disciples were learning all the time and yet notice that here they didn't even understand. Even they didn't understand. Think of that. Even his disciples didn't really understand what this was significant. But did God upbraid them? Did Jesus upbraid them? Did he say, you know, you guys have been with me for three and a half years, and I know you believe in me, but you you didn't understand what this is all, sorry, Um, I just don't want to be your friend anymore. You're not part of my club, guys. Sorry, i got to move on. i got to go somewhere else. Did he say that to them? No, he did not. Why? Because he's a God of grace. He's a God of grace. And so it doesn't matter what we know up here. I mean, Even what I shared this morning is a review to some of you, but even if you didn't completely comprehend it, is that going to somehow get in the way of your relationship with Jesus? No, it's not. It's not what you know. It's who you know. That's right, and who knows us. Right, exactly. So the knowledge is nice because it affirms our faith, it helps us, but it's not necessary. Even the disciples didn't know. And let me tell you, those guys were walking with him every day for three and a half years. So they knew, they knew. They didn't understand completely. And, you know, as we look at, uh, even like Luke chapter 18, it says that in verse 31, 
It speaks of the disciples not understanding certain things. And I fit that, I fit that mold because I, there's a lot I don't understand, but I know enough. I know the most important thing. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. If that's not enough for you, well, that's not enough for you, I guess. It's enough for me. But the more I get to know him, the more I read and study his word, the more it fills in the, 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 the cracks in my faith. It fills in all these things that I didn't know. And what does it, what does it do to me? It, it provokes a response from me, doesn't it? It provokes worship in me because the more I learn, the more I understand, the more I'm like, oh my goodness, I had no idea. I had no idea, Lord. I know you've saved me. You've changed me in the inside. I know that. I know I'm going to heaven by your grace because of what you've done for me. And I'm born again, and I'm filling in the cracks every single day. I'm filling in things, and I'm just blowing my mind as I read and as you read the Word of God. We're learning and we're growing, and God's going, oh, just keep going, keep going. Never check in your brain at the door. God doesn't require you to come to him with blind faith. No, come with all of your intellect. Come with all your degrees. He'll challenge you. You read his Word, and it will challenge you, as it did Sir Robert Anderson, a very educated, very brilliant man. Many of the most brilliant people in the world, when they've really sat down and looked at the evidence, they gave their heart to Christ. And I don't claim to be one of those men. They took Jesus. Jesus took the twelve aside, and he said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished, for he will be delivered to the Gentiles and will be mocked and insulted and spit on, and they will scourge him and kill him, and the third day he will rise again. Jesus told them this before it even happened at least three different times, but notice what it says in Luke 18, verse 34, but they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not know the things which were spoken, even though the scriptures in the Old Testament prophesied of Jesus coming and dying. I, you know, Psalm 16, verse 10, Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, you know, there's a bunch more, Genesis 3, 15. All of these scriptures, these all knew, and yet at the time they did not understand any of these things. I find myself in good company with the disciples. <laughs> I do. And maybe you do too, because it's not about what we know, it's who we know. It's who we know. One final thing, in John chapter 2, verse 19, it says, Jesus now speaking to the religious leaders, the Jews, he answered and he said to them, destroy this temple, speaking of the temple of Herod. You destroy this and in three days I will rise it up. And then the Jews said, it has taken 46 years for Herod to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? And, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, notice his disciples then remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scriptures that the word uh, and the word which Jesus has said to them. After the fact, they remembered. <laughs> Do you find yourself remembering after the fact? <laughs> you know, and I mean I, that happens to me often. I feel like sometimes it takes me an hour and a half to watch sixty minutes. A little slow. These guys were slow too. We're in good company. <laughs> they didn't get to heaven because of their scholarly understanding. They got to heaven because of their faith and their relationship with Jesus. It was who they knew, not what they knew. And it is not necessary um, 
what you know, but it's who you know. And it's even true today in our culture, isn't it? It's not what you know so much. It helps. But more importantly, it's who you know. You get into that job, young man, as your grandfather and your father was working at a, 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 a successful company and they were some of the best workers. And then the, the foreman comes to you one day and says, hey, you're so-and-so's boy. And you're just out of high school. Why don't you come work? I know your family. It's who he knew. And he gets in. Your home has repairs that needed to be done, and you call a contractor, and they can't, they got to schedule out four months. But hey, your daughter's married to a general contractor, and you call him and you say, Dad, I'll, I'll make sure to get this done next week. It's not what you know, it's who you know. And in the kingdom of God, it's the same. But it's different, it's holy. Because God is holy. It's not what you know but it's who you know. So they didn't even have a knowledge. And it's all about our relationship with Jesus. What does it say in Ephesians 2? We're going to wrap up here in just a second. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul tells the Ephesians, for by grace, God's unmerited favor, you have been saved through faith. And that, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. So our being saved is by grace through faith. And it's a gift. Salvation is a gift. And it is not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It's not about what you know. It's not about your giftings. It's not about anything that you could do that gets you saved. It's belief in him. It's by grace that you're saved. God's unmerited favor that we ask him and say, Lord, I am simply a sinner and I need your salvation. I need your forgiveness. I need you to save me, Lord. And he says, I forgive you. Welcome to the family. If you are sincere in your heart, God makes sure. So back in our text, therefore the people, verse 17, who were with him, with Jesus, when he had called Lazarus out of his tomb and they raised him from the dead, they were also there witnessing all these things. And for this reason, the people also met him because they heard that he had done this sign, this last sign in the book of John of Lazarus being coming to life again. And then finally in verse 19, let's look at this, and we're going to end here this morning. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, you see that you are accomplishing nothing. They were so jealous of Jesus. Do you see, guys? You're, you're accomplishing nothing. You're supposed to be the spiritual leaders, and nobody's, they're all flocking to Jesus. Do you see how you're accomplishing nothing? Look, the world has gone after them, after him. And I thought to myself this morning, and this week as I was reading this, would to God that the world was going after Jesus. Would to God that the world was going after Jesus. After all, isn't this the reason that he came into the world? To save sinners from eternal damnation? Yes, hell is eternal. But also, salvation in Christ is eternal. We're talking a time that will never end. Which side are you on this morning? What decision have you made concerning Christ? There's plenty of evidence. I read to you some of the most significant today. There's a lot more. Do you believe in the Word of God? Do you believe in Jesus Christ? You really should. 
because he loves you. And he wants you to be, to come to him. He wants you to turn from your sin. He wants you to come to salvation because it's his will that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He loves you. For God so loved the world that he gave, God the Father gave his only begotten Son, Jesus, the Son of God, he gave him that whosoever believeth in him would not perish for eternity, but have everlasting life. That's a promise. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Have you made that decision? For those of us who are here, hopefully all of you had. For those online or those listening in on the radio, have you made that decision today? You must make that decision today because guess what, folks? I don't know if you've looked around and watched the news, but time is winding down. The things that are happening in our world are winding down exactly the way the Scripture has been telling us for a, thousand, a couple thousand years. And are you going to respond to that and scoff and say, well, that's just a bunch of coincidence? I'd recommend that you don't. The proof is overwhelming And only the Spirit of God can touch your heart and my heart. Again, it's not through knowledge. All these things are wonderful and good. They they encourage us. But you have to believe by faith. And there's more than enough there to believe by faith. Will you make that decision? And we didn't even talk about the 70th week coming. That's coming on the horizon when the churches are moved. We could happen today. I hope to God that the Lord returns today. Before we even say amen to this service, I pray that we hear the trump of God and he takes us. Changes these bodies into celestial bodies. The same body that Christ was given will be given to you and I. We will be raised to meet him in the clouds. And then there is going to be a time on the earth The Bible calls the 70th week of Daniel. It's also called the Great Tribulation Period. In other uh, prophets, it's called the time of Jacob's trouble. It's coming. Do you want to be with Christ and escape this time that's coming upon the earth? And we're seeing the hallmarks of it all around us. If you've got breath, breathing, going through your lungs, and you've been paying attention in this world, especially the last couple of years, things are wrapping up. They're ramping up, folks. And aren't you glad that God has shown us the end? He's shown us these things before they begin to encourage us. That's what a good shepherd does. If we didn't know these things, we'd be scared out of our mind like the rest of the world. Why do you think that they're turning to drugs and alcohol and turning to every other vice known to man? Why do you think there's more people in mental institutions? Why do you think so many people are popping pills to sleep at night and losing their minds because they don't have what you and I have? We have the knowledge of God. Well, not all of the knowledge of God, but we've got enough. He's told us these things. So are you going to give your heart to Christ? Jesus, speaking to Nicodemus, notice what he said to him in John chapter 3. A very religious man, by the way. He told Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you must be born again. Unless you are born again, you can't even 
see the kingdom of God. He would go on to the fifth verse of that same chapter, and he said, Nicodemus, most assuredly, I tell you, unless you are born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Yes, you, Nicodemus, you very religious man, a very nice man. But his faith wasn't in Christ, but it became because he was one of the two that brought Jesus' body down from the cross, him and Nicodemus. Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, he gave his heart to Christ. Are you going to give your heart to Christ? Have you given your heart to Christ? And if you haven't, why are you waiting? Time is not on your side. You're not guaranteed tomorrow. None of us are guaranteed tomorrow. I've used this story before, but it's a true story. Remember those young ladies, those five cheerleaders from Fairport High School back in 2015? They had just graduated from high school. They had their whole world ahead of them, their whole life ahead of them. And they were involved in a fiery crash along Canisius Lake, and all five of them died in a fiery car crash. They thought they had tomorrow. They didn't have tomorrow. And you and I are not guaranteed even another breath that we take. Think of the gift that is. What a wonderful gift it is that God has given us breath. He's given us life. And he wants you to live it more abundantly. He wants you to live it and and rejoice in him and to know how much he loves you, what he's done for you. It's incredible. It's incredible. Would you let your heart be totally raptured by him? Would you let your heart be open to him today? I've read this verse, and we'll end with this, but this is such a poignant verse for us to end on. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. But then verse 17 goes on and it says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. That they might be saved. And we live in this wonderful time called the Age of Grace. But folks, listen, when that age of grace ends, I believe is when the church is removed and the age of grace is going to be very slim, very slim. So what are you waiting for? Now, for those of you who have never given your heart to Christ, I would encourage you, I'd implore you to do that today. You must be born again. That's not my command. That's Jesus' command. If the one who created all things says you must be born again, I think it's a pretty good idea. It's not like, it's, it's probably a good idea, you know, that you come to Christ and know him. And I, I don't know about you, but is there anybody here this morning that says, you know, I, I just don't, I, I don't feel it. I don't, I don't know. I, I want to do my own thing, you know. I want to I go over to the Middle East and study crystals and, 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 and get in a lotus position and contemplate my navel. I want to do all these things. I I don't know if I can really believe it. It just seems so far-fetched to me. It's more real than anything else you've ever heard before. Give your heart to Christ today. Do not delay. Do not delay. Why? Because he loves you. The love of God is so wonderful. And I'm still just learning Daily, I'm learning just like you are. If this morning, and again, we don't do 
many altar calls here, of course. And God doesn't need you to come down to the floor. You can do it right from where you're sitting or right from where you're sitting in your home or listening in your car as you're riding and listening. Right now, you can do that. And it's the greatest decision you'll ever make. Will you make that decision? And this morning, if you are here and you're in that place, would you speak and talk to somebody? Come up to the front if you want, after we're done. Be glad to pray with you. The other pastors, they can come up. If people come up, come on up, guys. When, you know, when, that, when that occurs, there's more than one. Let's pray with you. You don't need to pray with us. You can pray somebody next to you. There's nothing fancy about us. But get it done. Get it done. And then let your life be changed forever and draw close to the Lord. Dive into the Word of God. Trust Him. And especially in the times that we live in, don't give yourself, don't lend yourself to the fear that they're trying to promote out there. It's going to unsettle you. He, God is the, he is the Prince of Peace. He's not given us the spirit of fear, but of sound mind. A sound mind. So if that is you this morning, we pray that you'll make that decision for Christ. Be born again. Born from above. The Spirit of God indwelling you, and he will never take it from you. What God does is perfect, and when he's got you, he's got you. Turn with me really quick to John chapter 20. We'll end with this. I know I said I was going to end a while ago, but I lied. Uh, actually, it's, uh, it's John chapter 10, I'm sorry. I was thinking in multiples of 10. John chapter 10. Beginning in verse 25, just down through verse 30. Just to encourage you that you have assurance. There's an assurance of salvation. And John's gospel chapter 10, verse 25, Jesus answered them. He says, I told you and you do not believe and the works that I do... In my Father's name, they bear witness of me, but you do not believe. He's speaking to the unbelieving Jews. Because you are not of my sheep, as I said to you, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. When you belong to Christ, you will not be snatched back away. When you belong to him, no one is able to snatch you out of God's hand when he has you and when you've given your heart to him. He goes on, my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one and no one and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and my father are one. That's pretty good assurance, wouldn't you say? That's great insurance. So give your heart to Christ. Let's stand. And let's pray. Again, come up if you'd like to pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time together this morning, Lord. I know that we went a little longer, 
But Father, I pray that you would encourage each of our hearts today and that we would give our heart to you completely. And for those of us who have known you for some time, Lord, just draw us closer. Draw us closer and help us to walk with you, to walk with you, to continue walking with you and to put away those things of darkness and never to look upon them again, Lord. And we just thank you for your love and grace. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said? Amen. 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 God bless you. Have a great day.